Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, sometimes as a medical device professional or a startup or emerging company, I need to get the advice of others. Sometimes that advice comes in the form of a consultant or maybe somebody I used to work with or, or maybe somebody that's on my advisory board. But nonetheless, there's some good practices and there's some poor practices when it comes to identifying and selecting advisors for your company. And Isabella Schmidt, who is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima CRO, she and I talk about some of those pros and cons and things that you should consider. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Uh, Excited today to talk to uh, Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research. Isabella, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we always have a good time, or at least I always have a good time when I talk to you. I, I hope the feeling is <laughs> mutual, and you don't have to answer that. But anyway, it's mutual. I love it. All right. Guys. All right. Well, you and I were catching up. Uh, I don't remember. I think it was right around the holiday season, and we were talking about some things that both you and, and we observe from time to time. And I guess, broad topic is about advisors, and I guess a little bit more specific. The types of advisors that startups employ or hire or consult with from time to time. I thought we could talk a little bit more about that, some of the good things and maybe some of the not so good things. I, I have a feeling that you'll have plenty to offer on this. Does that sound okay? Yep, that sounds great. All right. So maybe good to put a advisor is kind of a generic label. So probably good to put a little bit more of a, I guess, a specific definition on it. I mean, we're not just talking about advisors that are on your board. We're talking about folks that you may hire as consultants or just people that whose opinion you seek from time to time on the course and direction of your medical device company. Any other thoughts or words you would add to that from an advisor standpoint? Yeah. So I would I'd consider those, but I'd also consider if you have advisors on your board and they're involved in things other than just board decisions, you know, like whether or not you want to turn accelerator or your next round, if they start, you know, bleeding into other product development realms or, you know, regulatory considerations, I'd consider them as part of this too. Sometimes advisors up into many roles. And, you know, I'd also consider, you know, key opinion leaders, KOLs, thought leaders from a clinical perspective, or any perspective really. But even sometimes, you know, when they have tons and tons of experience in, in one specific area, that doesn't necessarily translate to other areas or other situations. And so, you know, companies, leaders of companies, employees of companies should always be mindful of that, regardless of the the breed of advisor. I mean, let's be real. Both you and I ad- advise our customers, our clients each and every day. So, you know, we're a couple of folks yeah. that might be advisors as well. And I guess we'll stay kind of focused on the startup side of things because it seems like the startups probably more likely to seek advisors, maybe more so than some right. of the larger, more established companies. Where do startups go to find advisors? 
So I know that I've met startups through accelerators, you know, word of mouth. Um, sometimes startups meet advisors through investors or through strategics that they have any type of relationship with. Sometimes advisors from strategics can come from folks that were at those companies that are retiring, and but they're not they're sort of retiring. Everybody has like this loose term for retiring nowadays. Um, nobody actually retires. I know. Um, but so they're quote unquote retiring, but they still want to dabble a bit. And so they find, you know, a company interesting and they want to start helping out with that company. So those are the types of places that they might find advisors, you know, and for consultant advisors like me and you and any other consultants that are out there, I would say that all of the same applies. You know, I think that companies should always sort of vet whatever anyone's telling them, get a second opinion, do some research on their own, really think about it. I wouldn't just take what anyone says on face value, you know, and I think that you can sort of judge the level of trust that you can have for an advisor based upon how that advisor engages. So if an advisor is it's posturing a lot, and you can tell when people posture, it's a lot of, you know, ego, appeal to authority, that kind of thing. I'd be a little more hesitant because it doesn't seem like they're really working with the company as a team. I would say try to find an advisor who has some sort of level of humility. And if, you know, an advisor clarifies something later or makes a mistake and they come back and tell you, I would probably put more trust in that advisor than I would with someone who always tries to be right, if that makes sense. It, Even it does. when you presented evidence that they may be wrong. If they're not willing to hear other opinions, that can be detrimental to the company as a whole. All right. So there's a couple scenarios I thought we could dive into a little bit more in depth. A couple things that I see pretty often or, or come across or and have come across quite a bit. First scenario is I'm a startup and someone from one of these big strategic medical device industry household names is quote retiring <laughs> to your point. And I'm like, Oh, I want somebody from that key strategic to be an advisor to me. What are some of the, the pros and cons to that approach? Yeah. So I've seen that a lot. And it's great. I would say it's great for a few reasons. It's great because those people do understand a little bit of what a strategic might be looking for. They have connections in that space. They have connections with that company, even if they're retiring from it still. And sometimes they've established themselves as thought leaders. So that's that's great. But the caveat there, particularly for startups, is that working at a really large kind of company that one would consider a strategic is very different than working for a startup. And the product development and the product pipeline is very different than at a startup. You know, the types of things that are considered failures at a startup are different than they are at a really large strategic company. Or or the things that that occur after a failure are very different. So the risk profile for a startup, you know, business-wise, based upon the decisions that they make, are different than for strategic. You know, budgets are different for a startup than for strategic. Where the money comes from may be different for a startup than it is for a strategic. And so those things need to be considered when you have someone coming to advise you from one of those larger companies that their frame of mind 
is different. It's more targeted toward what it's like to exist in a large company than it is at a startup. So they may give advice that that is extremely risky for a startup that may not quite be as risky and as strategic. I've had experience where some advisors have advised companies to go straight into their pivotal trial, which is really not something that as a CRO, we would advise a company to do. That's not because we want them to do more trials with us. It's because if you fail your pivotal trial as a startup, you pretty much are going to end up closing your doors. It's a very rare company that survives that. And, you know, when you do your pivotal trial, you're essentially setting up your pass-fail criteria, your acceptance criteria for your endpoints. If you go straight into that, you haven't learned things about the trial design, the device design that could affect your ability to meet those endpoints. You know, you go through a risk assessment and you consider scenarios, but you haven't tested it yet. And I've seen companies who have done pilot trials and feasibility trials, and something in the design of their pivotal was slightly wrong. And so they fail meeting their pivotal endpoints. In retrospective analyses, they, you know, remove the factor that was a problem and they meet their endpoints. But, you know, going into that pivotal, they didn't consider that. Now they did the pilot. But if you go straight into a pivotal, you don't even give yourself a chance to find those issues. And so in a big company, maybe you you know, that's a ding. That's not good for anybody. It costs a lot of money to go into a large trial, but you may have the budget and the means to go back and reassess, fix the problem. Whereas in a startup, you're relying on investors or strategic to rely on you to make good decisions. So those mistakes can shake their faith in you altogether and everyone may pull out from under you. And then you can't raise more money to do another trial or fix the problems with the device because everybody's lost their faith in you. And so those risks are very different, you know, and so someone advises you to take a really great risk like that coming from a large company, they're not viewing it from a startup framework. They don't understand maybe the risk that is associated with failing that trial. Yeah, really good points. One of the other things, similar, but kind of a different part of the business that I've seen, and I'll share a short story. So we were working with a customer a few years ago. It was a three-person startup. And you know, they were very early stage development. And at the same time, I, I applaud them because they appreciated the value that a quality management system would be to the growth of their business. And, you know, they were working with us, but they also decided to hire an advisor, a consultant. And this person that they hired had a um, pedigree, so to speak, of one of the very large medical device companies. We'll leave the names out for the time being. But, uh, you know, this person was like director of quality or something like that at one of these large medical device companies. And that when that person came in, uh, to help kind of run the quality system, it brought them to their knees because this person was implementing mm-hmm. policies, practices, procedures that were not right-sized for this startup. They were beyond the stage where that startup was. I mean, they were still in development and and this person was focusing on putting in all the post-market surveillance aspects of a quality system. And, you know, on the surface, they said, this guy's done it before, but but once you know they brought the person in, he kind of brought them to their knees. And it took them a long time to recover from that. 
because you know he was ex- you know ex- you paid the guy's salary he's kind of expensive uh he was basically you know had kind of a singular mindset on quality and and not maybe a, a more holistic mindset of the business and and it was pulling key resources away from critical activities that were on the critical path for design and development and, and you know kind of getting to that next stage and and it was kind of sad to see that and that's not the only time I've seen that so that that's sort of the purpose yeah. of you and I chatting today is to try to give people tips and advice so that you don't have to go through this unnecessary pain and suffering and strain on your capital. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, again, to your point is that, you know, people who come from large organizations, it's not just like diss or dog them or anything. I'm sure they were wonderful at that organization. They have a good knowledge base. But large organizations tend to function inherently differently than startups do. And so someone who came from a large organization probably had a lot of procedures in place around their job function even. And so that sort of agility and flexibility in decision-making doesn't exist as much in large organizations. I can't say it doesn't exist at all, but for the most part, there are lots of bureaucratic oversight of things, you know, lots of red tape for things. So, and people may be put into silos for their jobs, you know, so I'm a quality person for one specific type of device that doesn't necessarily translate to other types of devices. It might not translate outside of the organization that I work in. And so those things should be considered too, because just the whole frame of mind going from large to small organizations is drastically different. Even, you know, large to small consulting groups, large to small CROs, large to small testing labs they can drastically differ in their approach to testing or working with companies or, you know, assessing where a company is. We don't sort of jive in a lot of ways. And so having someone who's an advisor to you who understands where your company is at as a smaller company or as a startup, you know, when I say smaller, I mean, like less than a hundred, maybe, you know, sort of, it could be mid-sized companies too, not necessarily three, but it also encompasses three. That's different than a company that has 10,000 employees, you know? Yeah. And again, it's nothing against the people who work at those large companies and nothing against those companies themselves. Because when you get to 10,000 employees, you have to function a bit differently, but that doesn't translate to companies that have three employees, you know, where, or where one person is doing four people's jobs, you know? Yeah. And, and so your quality system has to look different. Everything about what you do has to look different. Mm-hmm. All right. So one other scenario that I've experienced is I'll say, um, well, let me tee it up by uh, the favorite response of a regulatory and quality professional when asked a question is, it depends. And it does. I'm not being flip on it, but the sort of the the challenge can be like if I have, let's just say, three advisors that I'm asking about a particular thing, and it can be really anything. And I ask each of them the same question, I'm probably going to get three different answers. So what do I do in that situation? Yeah, that's tough. I would, what I would do personally is I would assess each option. And if someone gave me an answer and it was really short and brief and there wasn't sort of a rationale behind it, I may eliminate that answer. I would 
you know, I seek the type of answer that has a lot of substance to it, or I guess it depends on the, <laughs> depends. It depends on the nature of the question too, because, um, <laughs> you know, if it's a question where there should be a black and white answer and you're, you know, getting three different answers, that's probably worrisome. But if it's a question where maybe it's a strategic question and you have multiple options that you can consider, I would consider all of the options as, you know, the company. But trusting an advisor, I would probably trust the advisor who painted a more comprehensive picture of those options, gave an opinion on one of those options, but sort of left it up to the company to make the ultimate decision. Because ultimately, the company is the one that's going to be most affected by whatever decision is made. And so if an advisor doesn't have the humility to allow the company to have an opinion uh, or you know, say and how things go based upon any decision, I would probably not trust that advisor so much because then it seems like the advisor is more acting for self-interest than really the company's interest. Is that, I don't know if that answers your question or if that makes sense, but that's Uh, kind of how I would think about it. Yeah, and I I think it kind of goes back to your earlier comment about, you know, really vetting your advisors and their background and their experiences. I mean, I'll speak for myself here whenever somebody asks me that question and my initial response is it depends. I don't stop there. I, I explain why it depends. Right. I, I try to understand the different options like regulatory strategy. I'll just pick a specific use case. You know, sometimes people are like, well, I want to figure out a way to get my device class one because it's the perceived simplest, fastest, quickest, least expensive, yada, yada, so on and so Mm -hmm. forth to get my product to market. You know, should I go down that path? Well, it depends. You know, what do you want to claim your product does? And there might be an advantage for you to to be a class three or to go down the de novo route. So it's, it's trying to flesh all of that, those details out. And, the full picture. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, any advisor that is uh, worth being uh, advising your company, uh, you should have them explain their rationale. And if to your earlier point, if they're just absolute about there's one way and, and it's my way and this is it. And if you don't take it, then you're doing something wrong. That's not the way the medical device industry works. Frankly, it's not the way the world works. So, uh, tr- try to get a, a more, I guess, comprehensive understanding of, of the whys behind it. Right. Well, and I guess like another example, recently I had an example where a company, it was a class one kind of discussion. And, you know, for class one devices, some a lot of them are 510K exempt, right? And so, but, but there's sort of a caveat to being 510K exempt. Um, there's a, a part in the CFR that discusses, so most of the devices under this class maybe 510k exempt, but if you change your integrity of use substantially, or if you have a fundamental scientific technology difference, then you may not be 510k exempt. You file a 510k under that product. So there was this question about, is this technology 510k exempt or not? And, you know, there are multiple ways that you can sort of assess that. And you have to make a strategic decision about how you proceed. Like, do you just take the risk and assume that you're 510K exempt and go and register your device? Do you try to talk to FDA about it, assuming that maybe you're not 510K exempt? And you go and you have a pre-sub and you discuss, you know, your device and 
you know, maybe FDA comes back to you and says, hey, you're crazy, get out of here. We don't want to look at your device, you're 510K exempt, just registering with it. Or do you do a 513G where you ask them to classify? And there are risks associated with all of those and benefits associated with all of those. And so you have to make a decision about the path as a company that you want to move forward. And so you want someone who paints sort of the entire picture for you based upon your specific situation and what you're really trying to gain out of it. Yeah, folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking to Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research. You can learn a whole bunch more about Proxima Clinical Research by visiting ProximaCRO.com. Some of the things that Proxima engages with is helping uh, emerging companies with regulatory consulting and clinical research solutions. And, you know, they can help you with regulatory strategy and go-to-market strategies and all those sorts of things. So really great resources. They're uh, equipped and geared and staffed to help startup and growth stage companies. So uh, I would encourage you to, to reach out to the folks at Proxma to learn more. And, you know, we're talking about some tips and pointers for you to, to consider when identifying advisors. Certainly, you know, Isabella and myself, we, we do this all day, every day, where we're working with medical device companies all over the globe. And one of the things that uh, we take great pride in here at Greenlight Guru is the fact that we have built a world-class award-winning uh, medical device QMS solution that's designed for medical device professionals by uh, actual medical device uh, experts. So, you know, certainly we've built this platform for you. But in addition to that, we have a staff of people here who have firsthand experience bringing new devices to market, implementing quality systems, going through ISO audits, FDA inspections, and so on and so forth. So we're here to help. If you'd like to learn more about that, be sure to go to www.greenlight.guru. Uh, to learn more, and we'd be happy to schedule a demo and and learn about how uh, we might help you address your specific needs. All right, so let's get back to this this topic of advisors, and you know, I, I think it's really important that that uh, I can't stress the importance actually the due diligence. You know, uh, understanding before I just say, hey, I want you to be my advisor because I looked at your resume and your set of experiences. I mean, there's and here's a bunch of shares. Of my <laughs> here's company. a bunch of shares. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we laugh, but that, that happens. What sort of uh, advice or tips or pointers would you give a startup or an emerging company who's looking for advisors? What, what should they be doing from a due diligence standpoint beyond just looking at a resume? So, well, looking at the resume through a different kind of lens is a good idea because like we've been talking about, you know, someone's experience in one situation, like that playbook doesn't necessarily work. For a different game. And so considering, okay, this person has tons of experience in my device space, maybe, but it's all been at this really large medical device company. So what can I use this advisor for? How should our relationship work? And so not saying that you necessarily exclude the advisor altogether, but if their background has been strongly in R&D, then you might not want them to be making regulatory clinical decisions for you. You know, maybe not even quality, depending on how early they are in the R&D stage. So, you know, those types of things I would consider where their experience lies. Then, you know, you also want to interact with these advisors a bit before you really fully bring them on and give them shares of your company. Because if the advisors are rude 
to you or your staff, then you you may want to reconsider the relationship. And I know that a lot of these advisors bring different types of values, you know, especially if they're coming from a large company and a person has a really great network. But consider, I guess, why that advisor chose to want to advise you. And if that advisor decided, oh, hey, I want to advise this company because this technology is really innovative, it's cutting edge, it's great, it's cool, it's going to change the face of healthcare. If all of that's true, and you have this advisor who is overstepping either by being rude to your, your employees or to you or trying to go into realms that maybe that advisor isn't suited to giving you advice on, you might be better off not furthering that relationship. And I know it's tough because you, you might look at an advisor and say, oh my gosh, this person has great ties and this wonderful strategic and we'll get this great acquisition. But if all that stuff about your company is true, the things that maybe advisor want to work with you in the first place, then something else is going to come along for you. And you risk more by bringing someone toxic into your organization than you do by moving forward as a healthy organization and finding advisors and people to work with that are that work with you, that are respectful of you. Because if an advisor is not respectful of you, I don't know how much you can truly gain. They're just going to want to take over your company ultimately. And that's not good for the product or you as, as the people who make up that startup. Well, and I think that's a, you said something that I think is really important. If that advisor wants to take over you or your company or the product direction, that should raise some flags because, I mean, it's your company, right? Right. And, and you know, that advisor has already built a, a career of their own if they're, you know, they're retired. And so, the you know, you have someone with 40 years of experience the risk that that person is taking is something there's a mishap in your company or it doesn't work out. It's not going to affect their career because they've already established it. They're already done. This is like a side project that they're volunteering on now. And so their level of investment is going to be different than yours. And so if they're trying to take over your company, you should really take pause. And if they're not listening to you, if they're not hearing what you're saying or having the same considerations that you do, then you should should really reconsider the relationship with them. Maybe you don't remove them from your advisory board, but maybe you limit the scope of their interactions. So there are lots of different things to consider. And no matter who the person is or how important they appear to be, you should always be considering their relationship to you and the company and the product. And if that relationship is helpful, healthy, and appropriate. Yeah. And, and folks, I just, I know I, we already talked a little bit about it, but you know, the, the time to find out whether or not your company or your advisor is going to work for you and your company and your direction and your strategy or for their own agenda. The best time to find that out is before you add them as an advisor. No worse time to find out than several months in and, you know, all of a sudden they're changing the direction. So, you know, I, I cannot stress enough how important it is to do deep dive, thorough interviewing and due diligence. Um, think very long and hard and intelligently before you add folks to advisors to your company. I mean, it, yeah, and maybe, you know, you can have another advisor that you trust 
interact with that individual and see their perception of the person, um, how they feel about it. Because, you know, that other advisor might not be clouded by, oh, this person's going to get me so many connections. They may be able to objectively assess how that advisor is advising you and and the interactions that that advisor is having with, you know, the company. And so I would take the consideration of, people that you've already engaged with and you have established some level of trust and like, uh, I take their opinions into consideration in that situation too when you're bringing someone new into your entire team. Absolutely. So Isabella, this has been, I've enjoyed this conversation. I hope others are, are getting something out of this. Any other final thoughts before we wrap up this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast? No, just be careful about who you bring in on your team. You don't want to bring in toxic <laughs> individuals who disrupt your and your entire flow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got a finite amount of capital. You've got a direction. You've got a strategy. Of course, things pivot and change all the time. And your advisor should be there to advise you through those challenges and obstacles and hurdles and pivots. Uh, not creating them for you. So uh, keep that in mind. And I want to thank once again uh, Isabella Schmidt with. Proximal Clinical Research, folks check them out. They're, they're doing some really terrific work for emerging companies. And, and uh, I know Isabel and the team at Proxima, they're, they're here to help. And, and they've got the, the credentials, the pedigree, the experience to do so. So be sure to check them out, ProximaCRO.com. And as always, thank you so much for being uh, hopefully a loyal listener to the Global Medical Device Podcast. If this is your first podcast that you've heard from us, welcome. There's a hundred and... I don't know, 130 episodes to, to consume. So there's lots of, of information. And I just learned the other day that Greenlight Guru Global Medical Device Podcast was downloaded something like 120,000 times in 2019. So thank you for all of your loyal support and for sharing this with your friends and colleagues. Uh, keep spreading the word and uh, we'll keep bringing some exciting topics to you. And as I mentioned earlier, if you'd like to learn how Greenlight Guru Medical Device QMS solutions can help you move the ball forward and focus on true quality, then go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, it's been my pleasure to be your host and the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.